Hello and welcome to another episode of BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, an independent journalist based outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I guess here I'll just cram in the obligatory plug for uh, Patreon support and Substack subscribers. That goes here. Uh, Stick around during the credits for details on that, but we got a lot of show to get to, so let's get to this show. Today, my guest is Tim Tolka. He is uh, an author whose work I discovered rather serendipitously. When I first stepped into this field, I kept close with a friend, uh, filmmaker and former guest, Roger Hill. And in early July, Roger had shot some footage of a protest in Niles against the killing of Matthew Burroughs by the local police. I offered to help Roger research Burroughs' story and help him produce a short video using his footage, and that's when I first stumbled upon Tolka's work. See, Tim had written an exhaustively authoritative piece that went into the details of the Burroughs case and the marrow of the Niles PD itself. And in his byline and Twitter bio, I I noted that he had written a book entitled Blue Mafia. Uh, The the Burroughs video project, that that all got derailed when a week later I was covering a rally in Lyndhurst where another former guest of the show was speaking, Kareem Henton, the co-founder of BLM Cleveland. After that rally, I was chatting with Henton and learned that he was looking for someone to produce uh, a video about the killing of Luke Stewart by the Euclid police, which I hadn't been fully aware of. And uh, I immediately reached out to Roger and he was on board and we've been off running ever since. And so the last, you know, several months since July, I've just been crawling into and out of the rabbit hole of awful that is the Euclid PD and helping Roger co-produce a documentary about Stewart and other victims of that department, such as Lamar Wright and Richard Hubbard III. Those are names to look up, um, but I'll have more on those down the pike. I Basically, I'm doing the research, coming through things like City Hall videos and news articles, and Roger conducts the interviews and, and edits the footage. So despite being preoccupied with this whole project, I still reached out to Tolka and asked if he wanted to be a a podcast guest early on. And he was immediately on board and even sent me a copy of Blue Mafia. And I think the closing line of the opening chapter is really a perfect summation of the book. This is the story of two police departments, their turbulent relationship with the local community and how a quote, crazy unquote lawyer risked everything to bring in a higher authority. Blue Mafia has so many lessons for other cities in Ohio and across the nation. And about a third of the way through the book, I just had to stop and start again with a highlighter because there was so much that I wanted to be able to go back and reference for my own research into Euclid as well as for this interview. And before I even finished the book, I was recommending it to everyone I met in social justice and political abolition abolition circles. Uh, If if I talked to you for more than ten minutes, uh, and it was we were talking about this stuff, I was telling you about Blue Mafia. And prior to the interview, Tim and I probably spent about four hours on the phone getting to know each other and sharing insights and perspectives. He was extremely generous with the kind of advice and encouragement I needed to hear, you know, as someone new in the field. 
while there have been some positive, there are some positive changes to celebrate in the story that Blue Mafia tells. But ultimately, it is a, a harrowing story of how the gears of our legal and civic machinery can chew up activists and lawyers and victims of police violence who speak up and try to change the system. Tim strikes a bittersweet sort of optimistic tone towards the end of his author's note. And to kick off our interview, I asked him to reflect upon the following excerpt from Post-publication, I have a new fear as well as a new respect for American democracy. Even though the book is ultimately about how our institutions fail and are reborn, that I was able to write it is a testament to the strength of American democracy. My fear is that with consent decrees effectively eliminated as a tool of civil rights enforcement in the administration of our institutions and agencies, especially in the criminal justice system, the integral work documented in this book will no longer happen in these United States. That is a travesty of justice as grave as any documented in this book. Yeah, well, everything has gotten a lot worse. That author's note was made relatively recently. And even since then, the situation is just amplified. Um, so, yeah, I mean, institutions are failing and uh, the police brutality is getting worse. Um, it's really clear, you know, when Black, Matters, when Black Lives Matter started, I was already researching this book. And... Um, of course, I was, you know, I greeted, I was like really welcoming Black Lives Matter, not only because it shined a light on something that I was passionate about, but also because um, it was timely and the, the, the abuses seemed to be escalating. Um, at least the documentation was growing more and more and more pervasive, you know? And the book highlights some of the early cases of uh, videotaped police brutality. Um, the Kimball case, which the book sort of revolves around, at least uh, one of the two consent decrees in the book was started because of a viral video of police misconduct, um, of police brutality, sorry, and it shocked people, you know, around the nation. And uh, now, you know, we're growing numb to it as it intensifies. Uh, but, you know, George Floyd, that video was yet another moment that everybody was shocked again, you know, like even deeper than former times. I think one of the shocking, the most shocking videos I've ever seen was that uh, Baton Rouge video where the the guys are at a like a sonic and they shoot the guy and you see him shoot him and you see the moments of his ex expiring and um yeah the the reaction in the book is similar to the reactions that are happening today except the reactions today are even worse you know and I think it's partially about presidential leadership, but it's also about local leadership, how people respond to um, popular outrage over these kinds of cases, you know? 
in yeah. uh, in Warren, people disregard dis they, the public officials, especially the police chief, uh, downplayed the incident, and you know poo pooed the protests, which is kind of what's happening now. Is we have a executive leader that's poo pooing the protests and downplaying the the violence and brutality. You know, just like, and that's the thing, the chief in Warren was so similar. He's very, his leadership style is very similar to Trump. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the two consent decrees in the book revolve around chiefs whose leadership style was um, heavy handed uh, against the press, you know, anti-transparency, um, refusing of any sort of accountability or uh, check. You know, even the rightful ones, you know, like internal investigations. Yeah. And uh, the, police, the police chief's boss, the public safety director. You know, those are automatic checks in our American law enforcement system. And if one police department disregards the internal investigations or a public safety director then you can have the same kind of terrorism that happened in Warren and Steubenville. Yeah. And towards the end of the book, there's a, there's a quote from a, the DOJ report that it's difficult to change the culture in a department when the head law enforcement officer of the city draws a thick blue line with police on one side and people on the other. And it also, I think another um, investigator is, points out that the DOJ can push policy but it's the culture that it can't really change. And that has to change in order for these reforms to stick. Mm -hmm. Culture eats policy for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the culture of uh, the Warren Police Department under John Mandopoulos and arguably started well before then, but the personality of Mandopoulos in control of the police department, um, it gave the rank and file officers a feeling of, um, of autonomy from punishment and a, uh, a sort of situation where they policed for respect. You know, somebody disrespected them. So, for example, uh, they're in, a, in the black part of town, which is very carefully segregated. It's in one fourth of the sectors of the city, you know, and it's very mm -hmm. like, it's just, it's, it's a relic, you know, of, of redlining and this kind of stuff. Anyway, this office, these two officers are walking down the street and a uh, young black youth gives them the finger and they go over and put a gun to his head. This was in like 2003, I think. And later there's a lawsuit and um, it was about all about respect and the, the liberal judge that heard the case, the federal judge uh, said that this was, you know, a case where the first amendment truly, it just automatically overpowers this um, police officers, you know, anger about being flipped off. Like those kids have the, First Amendment right to express their opinion. Now, I want to I want to roll back a little bit here, um, and I wanted to 
Well, I want to get, I want to talk about Richard Olavito, like the central character in this too. And this is just going to sprawl because it's such a tangled yeah, mess. Like, but like I did. years of history. Yeah. I, but I wanted to kind of roll back here to, so you're not from Ohio. Uh, how did you come to write this story? And was social uh, ju- or racial justice something that was already on your radar as something you were interested in, in, in writing about? Or did this take a hold of you? I came to be interested in it. Um, I was already interested in police corruption and, um, and kind of sanctioned state terrorism. That's what I was doing my master's degree on in D.C. when I started to, when I met Olivito on Twitter. And it was actually because of uh, sexual assault investigations. So I was, um, I was very close to a sexual assault survivor and her case had been mishandled. And we worked together to bring it to the attention of, uh, of media and the local authorities and then eventually the state attorney general's office in Ohio. And so since a similar case had unfolded in Steubenville around the time that um, we started trying to reopen the investigation into hers, uh, I got focused on Steubenville. I went there and eventually I met Olivito and I started to learn about his story. It actually took me like eight months to start to even understand what was happening in Steubenville and Warren, and I was already interested in uh, in racial and social justice, but you know, partially, particularly um, police brutality against uh, African Americans, because I had I had been made very aware of it um, in San Francisco and New York, and uh, you know, it was it's just it was on my radar because I was in a very um, racist atmosphere as a child. And I cared about it. So uh, once that I started to understand that this was a phenomenon that really affects everybody, it cuts across color lines, it cuts across gender lines, it even sometimes cuts across class lines, but rarely. Uh, Most of the time, at least in Steubenville and Warren, it was directed against women, black people, poor people, um, even sometimes like disabled uh, once in a while. Uh, it was just anybody that was vulnerable, you know, could become a victim of this. But it was really, really pushed on the, the black community in Warren. Steubenville's police brutality was, was, there was a racial aspect to it for certain officers, I believe. But it wasn't something that the Department of Justice ended up focusing on so much like they did in Warren. Even though in, in both cases, they kind of... Um, sidestepped making race a big, big part of the consent decree. I think both towns are probably reported or both departments were probably uh, required to report um, the racial um, belonging, you know, the, uh, whoever they arrested or, or pulled over, you know, yeah. uh, identify who they were. But those safeguards and those systems of um, record keeping and accountability don't always hold up once the consent decree is over. Yeah. And Warren and Steubenville were both departments that didn't want to give public records. They didn't, they didn't keep good public records, you know. Um, 
a records request by a local newspaper in the 90s in Warren for internal investigations. Uh, they fought the revelation all the way up to the Ohio Supreme Court. And when they lost, when the records were turned over, a lot of them were incomplete. Many, under, many investigations had not even been undertaken. Uh, there was a, a case where a woman had reported being sexually assaulted by two police officers and there was no investigation. Instead of referring it to a special prosecutor, as they should, they put it into the internal file and buried it. Mm. The kinds of things that were happening in Steubenville and Warren are horrific. And when you ever hear consent decree, that's what you should think. Horrific management failures. Human rights abuses covered up by management or human rights abuses committed by management. You know, um, any time that a cop murders somebody, uh, like for example, um, there are a few cases around the United States where cops actually hired somebody to murder somebody that either complained or they had a beef with for some reason. And um, it takes the Department of Justice to come in there and get accountability. Rarely will the department ever investigate their own in that kind of a, a grave capital crime. You know, they shouldn't yeah. be, but they will and they'll cover it up. You know, it happens all over the country. And, and in Warren and Steubenville, uh, they just had a problem because Richard Olivito uh, was noisy enough and crazy enough. Yeah. So he, 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 he Richard, worked on this. Rich, so Richard Olivito is, uh, like I said, he's a central, I would call him a protagonist in, in, in your story. And he comes from uh, a family of, of lawyers mm -hmm. who uh, were respectable. And, and mm -hmm. so he sets up shop. And can you talk a bit about his moment of radicalization because to me that's what sets olivito apart from his colleagues in the court system who are you know they're they're there to play the game as they were taught it's supposed to be played follow the rules of decorum and who how you should talk to people and what you should look into and so he and and the this led him to what was the quote play the role of the detective the reformist and the traitor because he really saw himself in the vein of he connected with the abolitionist movement and yeah so if you can talk about his radicalization and and how uh he starts to um basically pull at this pull at this thread and or and eventually leads up to the very first consent decree occurring in Steubenville and you don't have to recap the whole book but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he started out as a more or less status quo criminal defense attorney um, but <clears throat> he had a couple of cases that um, gave him an inside view and uh, the two the Two or three that really set him up were um, African-American youth, uh, one of whom was a reputed drug dealer, and the two others were completely innocent or, or guilty of some, you know, misdemeanor, low-level crime, and they suffered a horrific injustice. The first one that he ever really came into contact with, he was sitting in a hospital room across from a a kid that had been 
beaten bloody and dragged along the concrete so that like the skin was dis was worn away on one side of his face and uh he was uh he pled guilty to a low-level crime and the police followed him and beat him up after he asked for a continuance so he asked for something that was justified it was his right and then they didn't like it it was this was probably 1992 and they disfigured him you know they they mutilated his face and sitting there in front of this olivito was just filled with uncontrollable rage and it just fueled him you know for years to just to disregard relationships that he had been building to disregard the respect of uh of powerful people in the community and to just try to stick it to them at all costs you know they started threatening him they started trying to kill him and he just yeah at one point there's there's another civil rights lawyer that's um prominent in ohio um mcnamara i forget the first name uh james jim, yeah. jim mcnamara at one point says to olivito uh I'm surprised that you're taking this up in your hometown. <laughs> yeah, because you can't escape it. You know, um, his, the, the police and the, the people that he was angering, you know, not only the, the police chief, but the prosecutor, the county prosecutor, um, powerful judges from the Brazis family, and uh, and city council people who were pro-police were all very, very uncomfortable and angry about what he was doing. And they pulled the strings on the school board, the hospital, the whatever, the courts, you name it, everything and everyone is in their pocket pretty much. And the only people who could stand up against those institutions are black pastors who can't be fired because they are, their salary is paid by the black community, you know, and, you know, a few people that may have a conscience in power, uh, maybe a black, con uh, black council member, uh, Skip Mixon, who is now deceased. He was an influential voice, but there were really only about four or five people in that entire community who had a platform and the courage to stand up. And when they did, they could face uh, planted evidence supervised by the county prosecutor, Stephen Stern, who is now retired in Florida. And, and that competitive Stern, Stern is definitely a shocking character or the way he ran yeah. things and looking to make a reputation for himself. And then he basically had this private secret service uh, agent or whatever. Uh, uh, what was the guy's name? But he's just like, his Not a Terry. police. Terry. That's it. Rain Secret Terry. Service agent. Yeah, and, that's uh, quotes. <laughs> yeah, and he pretended to be, he passed himself off as a police officer and he worked in the narcotics squad for the county. And what's interesting to me in particular is with this case is the narcotics squad. So around the country, narcotics squads have trampled on people's rights they have been responsible for some of the worst abuses, especially drug trafficking by cops. It's not alone that this happened in Steubenville. It happened in L.A. It happened, I think, maybe in Pennsylvania. Um, it's happened a lot of places. And a lot of times they don't get caught because they're the narcotics squad, you know. But they are tough to sue 
because it brings together different agencies. And so it's like a shell game. Yeah. The courts can be like, oh, you, this is not the right agency that you filed the civil rights lawsuit against. Uh, the narcotics squad is that the county sheriff is under, you know, and it's like, well, you know, even the Department of Justice didn't know who to, to go against. Was it the, the county sheriff? Or was it the Steubenville City Police? Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't do both. But actually, the culprit was the prosecutor, you know? So it was a county official who was in league with a, with a metro or a, a city official in Steubenville that were using the narcotics squad as a vehicle for civil rights violations and doing their dirty work, political work. They were, hit, they were doing hit jobs on people that resisted them, planting drugs in their apartments, and their main guy was an unaccountable Secret Service agent that worked for the prosecutor who wasn't even a, a law enforcement officer. He was not licensed to make an arrest. And faced with the record of his abuses, what did the authorities do? Did they look into all of the arrests that he made and throw them out? Nope. They released two brothers who had been falsely arrested. They paid off the civil rights suit and then they buried it and that motherfucker stayed at that agency for another 10 years and then his son was arrested with like meth ecstasy weed this is the son of the police officer the police officer yeah the the, the police officer (laughs) i mean if you can't even identify the guy how can you sue him how can you hold him accountable he's not a police officer He's a secret service agent. They didn't even want to reveal that. The, po- the prosecutor kept that information secret for as long as he possibly could. Now, how, how unique is that to Steubenville? Or do prosecutors oh, routinely have like, their own like, they do, they do. independent they're supposed agents? To be, they're supposed to be uh, officers of the peace that have been licensed by the state. But there's really lax oversight. Uh, the Supreme Court is the mediator and the disciplinary institution for lawyers, including prosecutors. But all across the country, Supreme Courts and any commission that was supposed to look into judicial or prosecutorial misconduct, they have kept all that shit secret. And in in Ohio, they they punished something like two or three judges in 50 years. And it was only when the, the abuses and the crimes had grown so acrimonious and disgusting that they were forced to. But in the case of Steubenville, the prosecutor stayed in his job for another five years until he was voted out, even though he had committed crimes. He was involved in drug trafficking firsthand. He was probably touching bags of Coke, you know, that his officer had confiscated from local drug dealers. And too, so Stern was also, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think it was the only one. So one of like the um, intimidation and and discreditation tactics they'd use is um, sort of like setting up busts for anyone that was causing trouble so that they could get them in court, get that bust on the record to then undermine them in their civil rights case. And they would pack the jury with friends. Yeah. The, one of the key things for the, for the abuses in Steubenville and Warren and all across the country is packing juries and not allowing any black people. It cannot be allowed on juries. And in Jefferson County to this day, 
they surgically remove any black people from juries. When you go into the Jefferson County courtroom, uh, every judge, you know, Miller, Brzee's, all of those people allow the prosecutor, who is now Jane Hanlon, to scientifically target and remove any black person so that all of the people in the audience are people of color and the people that are defendants, exclusively people of color, and the jury, exclusively Caucasian. And the judge, mostly men, prosecutor, white woman, who is married to a sergeant. And the sergeant will sit there in court and testify while his wife questions him. And the Supreme Court knows of these relationships. The judge, Brzee's, was part of the Brzee's firm who, uh, which employed Hanlon and gave her her law license. She was created by the Brzee's family who pulls all levers of the institutions, including the school board, all of those things. So now it's probably worse than it was back then, at least in, in terms of the potential for abuse and the lack of safeguards because everybody belongs to the same family, you know? Yeah, and I think that's really where the, the title of the book, Blue, uh, Blue Mafia, comes together is when you're talking about all these family connections in, in both these cities, professional relationships, um, and, and, and there's so much just open, well, I mean, yeah, open collusion. And nepotism and, and, and uh, case fixing. That's what you were getting at with, with Stern. So yeah, fl flaking really, or planting evidence, I think it was called. This, this yeah. was something I think Stern goes farther than most uh, public officials. Because Stern was such a vicious, vicious psychopath. Um, he, he couldn't stand to lose a case. And it got to the point where attorneys were afraid to push a trial for a trial, for a jury trial. They were afraid to represent their clients because they knew the professional risk, even a criminal risk. Um, Stern declared war on the Olivito family because uh, Judge Olivito, Richard's father, was, um, was against the kind of um, corruption and um, political tactics that Stern was using because Stern had a lot of people afraid uh, in city council, uh, in the prosecutor's office. I mean, he had people under his control. He even went against the police chief, uh, finally. And that's a fascinating case uh, because Stern finally used his power against the police chief and a sergeant, you know, falsely representing things to the jury, uh, you know, making the law enforcement making law enforcement a target of the political campaigns that he had leveraged against private citizens and other public officials. Mm -hmm. And uh, now in Jefferson County, there's an assistant prosecutor who was one of Stern's victims. The man hates Stern. Like you wouldn't believe if you ask him about Stern immediately, his mouth is full of obscenities <laughs> and he's now in a position of power, you know, but at the time, Stern was invincible. Right. And now I feel like Jefferson County is in a better position, at least because uh, Chief 
Jerry McCartney is gone, who continued to collect bribes from at least 15 gambling establishment, establishments after the DOJ started investigating his department. Uh, he's gone. And Stern, who was actively dealing drugs, is gone. Uh, but, you know, people that are in their place are less unscrupulous, but equally in for themselves, you know, for their family's yeah. power. Uh, and so well, I don't necessarily immediately find it comforting that like someone like uh, the new guy hates Stern unless it's coming from like that hatred's based on injustice and not just like he was an asshole and I didn't like him for these completely like not not inspiring reasons. <laughs> so the the experience that he had was that he had called out Stern and then Ray Terry the Secret Service agent planted coke in his restaurant. And then they accused him of drug trafficking, falsely, of course. And they had done this to numerous people. Yeah. Uh, one of the most fascinating cases was a bookie, uh, Kaniski, Joe Kaniski, who had a gambling operation. He didn't want to pay bribes. And so they falsely charged him with assault of a police officer and stern packed the jury, lied to the jury, and then they put him in jail for 12 years. And he had done all this kind of homework in order to protect himself, making recordings of Stern's henchmen, planning assassinations. Stern wanted to kill people. If his secret, like, assassins and stuff would have agreed, he would have become a, a murderer. And in fact, we don't know if he was or not. There was a suspicious murderer that I didn't include in the book because I just, I didn't have the the breath to, to pursue it. But there was just so much stuff that happened back then in the 90s and the 80s. You know, prostitutes turning up dead. I should use the word sex workers. Um, but there's, there was a lot of, uh, of sex work in Steubenville, which was supported by the people in power. They had one person in control of it all, a madame. And, you know, I'm sure that her women support, uh, service the police officers. But when anybody started to threaten that, oh, we might talk, those women ended up dead. And that was the way it was for 70 years. You know, they wrote about it, uh, a man, a historian named Nygaard wrote about it in 1946, that in Steubenville, if a, if a prostitute ended up dead, people figured that she knew too much. And it stayed that way. You know, even the chief of Steubenville admitted in an interview to a law enforcement magazine that they, the police department did not change with the 60s. After the civil rights movement, a lot of police departments across the country had to adapt. In the Steubenville, they didn't change. They just kept dealing with things like they used to. But it's been like that in statewide in Ohio. You know, they refused to accept that uh, the civil rights movement, you know, made it to where you couldn't treat, you shouldn't be able to treat black people this way anymore. But in Ohio, Five cities have been investigated, one twice, and that's almost more than anywhere in the country, definitely more per capita. Ohio has more federal investigations, and it's because of the racism. Well, and the, like, you're, you're bringing up, like, how sex workers are, you know, abused, this, and then it's, it, it makes me just think about how, 
you know, and I wanted to get to the limits of the consent decree and the types of reforms that need to happen. But to a certain extent, a, a consent decree is never going to address the fact that, you know, sex work is criminalized, that drugs are criminalized the way they were. And those are the pretexts that create powerlessness. That is a really astute observation. And I meant to give you a, a, a pat on the back also for, for pointing out Olivito's radical, radicalization that distinguished him. Both of those are really, really good observations. Uh, and the, the vulnerable, you know, the drug dealers and the sex workers were some of the most vulnerable people in those towns and across the country. And the DOJ, even though they couldn't remedy that legal situation, they did rely on those people. They trusted those people for their investigations. One of the most... Um, triumphant moments in my entire uh, writing of the book was going through city council minutes from like 2011 and randomly finding a woman who was talking out of turn and was ignored. But she was talking about how she had organized a meeting between the federal investigators of the DOJ and local drug dealers. And I called her up. She had a, you know, like a landline and she was like, hello, you know, and just like really, really nice old lady. But she, her son had been arrested by the police, you know, for whatever reason. She had had problems. They were harassing her. And so she brokered a meeting between like four or five of the town's reputed drug dealers who had all been robbed by Steubenville police. And uh, the federal investigators specifically went to them for information and they reached out in the black community in Warren as well and had a meeting with um, a bunch of people in a record store owned by the only black city councilman and so you see that you know the, the Department of Justice they operate by their own rules and they keep those as secret as possible uh, there are only about two or three people that talk uh, to, pay, to newspapers about the Department of Justice investigations, especially police investigations. And <clears throat> they'll tell you things, but they're the only ones. Everybody else who's in the Justice Department, their lips are sealed. Yeah. I got one high-ranking lady on the phone. She was super uncomfortable. She evaded questions. She did not want to have an interview you know, and um, it's just super hard to get information. Tellingly, in January of 2017, the Department of Justice released a document about their police investigations because they knew all of that was about to get shut down. And they oh, were right. Well, that's what I was, I was kind of wondering. How much, how much like... Um, institutional co uh, consistency is there in the Department of Justice between administrations? Like how much turnover or, I mean, because it can't be everyone is an in appointments, but even if you're the lifetime person and then your leader changes and their priority is like, eh. Totally. Or it's, it's also, you know, they wield these investigations for political purposes. Like, oh, let's go into like a consent decree 
in like a, a democratic town is a great opportunity to take out a bunch of democratic officials if you're a republican and vice versa that's brilliant that's one of the major problems uh and that's one of the ones that that's one of the things that richard olivito identified and fred harris also identified as one of the biggest problems that sandbag yeah fred harris is definitely another protagonist in this yeah, just yeah, so he's, for the, he's the safety director of warren Yep, and he's the first African-American safety director, and he, he causes so much anger inside the department that the chief openly refers to him as the head N-bomb. And he saves that name for only two other officials, both of whom are city council people, uh, African-Americans, of course. And he did this openly in front of all of his uh, officers, including the ones, three or four, that were black. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of just. Yeah, he just waves. He just waves around. He's like, "You, you can't touch this." Exactly. And Fred Harris started to to use his 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 position, but the thing is, so Warren's investigation started in late 2004, right before the Bush administration was reelected, and so after. The, the administration was pushed by the, 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 the singularly, uh, you know, just disgusting nature of, of Warren's strip searches. The, 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 the level, the severity of the abuse. It was, was everyone like, that got arrested. No, everybody was certain. stopped for traffic violations. Yeah, everybody stopped for black. like... And yeah, they were sticking in, in, their fingers in their rectum and stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the, the violations had been going on since the 80s and before. Uh, in the 80s, they once strip searched a man for a wandering dog. <sighs> Black man, of course. Uh, but so this was going on, and then the Department of Justice gets wind about it, even though it was the Bush administration, which tried to stop all of this. They were just like, oh, oh man, oh, wow, this is, this is really bad. We... We were going to have to do something about this. Like doors were getting knocked on, you know, of senior people being like, hey, hey, I know we don't want to do this, but we really got to do this. This is so bad that you just can't allow it to keep going. And so they start the investigation and then they don't really do anything for like, they do a little bit for like two years and they release a report and then they put her off and they don't do anything. Uh, Fred Harris in 2008 calls the Department of Justice and he's like, this is still open or you guys care about us anymore? Do you guys forget about us? And then the Obama administration comes in and later they spring to action. But the, the whole investigation was hamstrung for seven years. It didn't move forward. It just kind of stayed where it was. And they were like, okay, we've kind of like done this report. And, you know, a lot of local people were very, very disappointed because it didn't really call out the department in a super substantial way. It was looked on as kind of like toothless. And, but then they came in miraculously in 2011 and 2012 and put the department under a consent decree. And it was just all very mysterious. One thing that may have played a role was the chief just refused to do anything. He would barely even like listen or sit there and make eye contact. He acted like an angry teenager. And so, there, yeah, there were moments where I was completely shocked by, you know, yeah, the safety director and, and, and even like the mayor would, would put, tell him like, 
you need to do something and he'd be like, no. Yeah. And he'd yell at them or walk out of meetings. And so they were, they were put out of office and a new administration came in that was Democrat, but not, you know, like then in Warren, they say they're Democrats. I swear they're not. They're like blue dog Democrats that don't exist anymore, but they just allow corruption and police brutality. They're corrupt. Like they're not Democrats. And I think they're just money-grubbing sons of bitches. And they all need to be thrown out, including the top brass of the police department. All of them need to be removed. They need like a truth commission. It's, it's, it's horrendous what's been allowed to, to happen there. But it shows you how political administration changing totally changes the calculus. If it changes the Department of Justice, changes everything. If it changes mm. locally, maybe nothing more is going to happen, you know? Like a lot of these consent decrees um, in Baltimore, in Chicago, in Cleveland, um, they're kind of like you don't really know if they're going to do a, a great job because the process is not transparent. I mean, it, it's more transparent now than it was. The Obama administration had made it much more transparent. They started to quote residents in their reports instead of just saying, you know, uh, the department is you know, credibly accused of management failures and uh, failure to conduct in internal investigations and excessive force and all these other things. But they wouldn't just talk about, you know, a certain lady had been strip searched in public while people looked on. You know, this is the kind of stuff that they said about Baltimore in the report. So the newspapers would latch onto that, you know, and it creates more of a, a public knowledge of the abuses that were going on, which is very valuable because... So I think the consent decree leverages reform power in a couple different vectors. It can force the, the police department to change policies, which then will result in administrative discipline as it has in Warren. Warren has made a lot of progress. Uh, officers regularly, almost routinely get punished for a month, two months nowadays in Warren which nobody was punished for nine years. Mm -hmm. Nobody for nothing. They could go around blurting out the N-bomb on camera and nobody was punished. The, and then the there, police, was, there was even that one story of the, the one officer who was like, he lied about, uh, I forget the exact incidents, and then they gave him like three months to like, get your story straight. And then he lied again. And it seemed like they, they punished him just for almost like, why are you so stupid? Can't, don't you know how to do this? And that was in 2017 after the consent decree, Yeah, you know? So they, they, they did, I can't remember the guy did get punished, but it was because it was, it was messed up and it took him too yeah. long, but it, you know, that was actually progress. That's the funny thing. Just the fact that he was punished was your people were like, whoa, oh my God, you're punishing him for lying? Whoa, uh, that's great. You know, it's because of our low, low standards that we're like, oh my God, thank God they've been punished. You know, yeah. because in Warren, you just couldn't even do it. You could mount a public campaign with 500 people marching in the streets just to punish one officer and everything would just fall on its face in front of one officer. It was just like, I want to say the N word, you know, and the chief's like, that's his right. He can do that. You know, even though it's against policy, it's against sense, it's against, you know, 50 years of history, but they just allowed it to happen. And the, the prosecutor, 
the prosecutor in, in Trumbull County where Warren is, his name is Dennis Watkins. He is a cowardly, disgusting, base son of a bitch. Uh, he's been in his office for 40, 35 years. He's untouchable. He's in the pocket of whoever's in power. He doesn't do anything to anybody that's powerful. They had two cops, no, three, two cops and one probation officer uh, take money from a Coke dealer and kill a government informant. And the prosecutor, Dennis Watkins, did not charge them. He charged three other people. He charged the, the drug dealer who paid the cops to kill the witness. He charged the guy who like drove the car, uh, even though the car belonged to a cop and the gun belonged to a cop. Wow. Yeah, that's how, how terrible Trumbull County justice is and how much Dennis Watkins will just allow cops to do whatever they want and he will only charge them for a crime if it's on camera. And even sometimes when it's not, he'll be like, oh, innocent, they're absolved. You know, because their their unofficial code, their custom and their policy is that no law enforcement officer will be punished. No law enforcement officer will be indicted. They may be punished now, which is an improvement, but they will never indict. They did indict uh, one former cop for like, uh, I think he like hit somebody with a car, but he had already shot another cop and they didn't do anything about that, you know? He was like, he was let go because he had mental problems and all these temper tantrums and stuff. But it was like, you know, on his like fourth mulligan. It's just, it's abominable. And um, the, the citizens, the, the residents of these towns, man, they're desperate for newspapers to pay attention because there's no local reporters that are worth anything. Well, Cleveland scene seemed like they did and uh, you know and they still like from since i've been you know working as a journalist i just keep coming across more and more stuff from their archives it's like wow you did yeah. the good they coverage yeah they did it vindicator did some good coverage once in a while too but it's few and far between and the cleveland scene is just one one well, there's, outlet you know they're and always they, they selectively is, they're very selective about what they take and what they don't. Yeah, and I, I mean, part of that's just resources too. Yeah. Um, um, and the pro I mean, the problem I see, and it's still now, and 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 what I'm trying to do is like what you did here in this book. So I'm looking at Euclid, and there's everyone had a lot. Of, there's three big cases in Euclid that bubbled up, and you know, three names of Richard Hubbard, Lamar Wright, and Luke Stewart that, uh, you know, a lot of people in Cleveland and, and Euclid know, and some of them bubbled up nationally. Um, but trying to get beyond like this siloed moment of outrage and to create the composite because these, these stories that bubble up where there a, there happens to be video and then B the video was compelling enough for it to become a major news story. Like those are the tip of the iceberg. So in the absence of federal investigations, state attorney generals need to do the work. So the way that it used to function was when there was a critical incident that was on tape, um, activists and news you know, anybody concerned could call the Civil Rights Division, the 
the Justice Department, and they might investigate or inquire if there was enough desperate, you know, incriminating kind of um, reports coming in. So now that's done. Like that doesn't happen anymore. Forget it. It doesn't even exist. Civil Rights Division probably like protects white supremacists now for all practical purposes. So if Biden doesn't win, the Civil Rights Division will be ground into dust and it will be as, as, as if it never existed. And then we will be dependent on federal, on uh, state attorney general. They have a Bureau of Criminal Investigation. They have the resources to conduct police misconduct investigations. They don't want to because they're already overloaded. They're already overwhelmed with the kinds of things that the local police fuck up. You know, when the Steubenville police botched the investigation of the rape case and allowed the prosecutor to, to refuse to recuse for two weeks while she doctored things and talked to people who were guilty, you know, and had them hire counsel. She, she bungled that investigation so bad that this, the attorney general was forced to step in. And with, with rampant corruption across the state that is unchecked by the Supreme Court, prosecutor, prosecutorial misconduct, you know, blatant, obvious, documented, they won't touch it. So the attorney general has to handle all that bullshit, you know. In Euclid, when some terrible thing happens, the BCI has to come in and investigate and be like, all right, all right, nothing happened. It's all good. All you people can go back to your houses now. The madman who was shot by the police had a cell phone in his hand. You know? Yeah, I'm really, I really like, I want to see how like, the BCI, uh, the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, is something I wanted to look into more to find out, like, I don't know, just their pattern of, because it seems to me the way, like, Euclid will, when they had an incident, they immediately, like, try to calm everyone down, like, hey, we called BCI immediately. Exactly. We're not investigating. The BCI, them. they know the detectives. They know the chief. You know, their investigators work with those guys all the time. Uh, those, those, so just to give you an example, it's independent on paper. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's nothing. You can't trust them to do a, a thorough job. And even if they do, when they give it to the local prosecutor, he's going to turn a blind eye, blind eye. You know, that's exactly what happened in Trumbull County in Niles with the death of Matthew Burroughs, which you, that's how you found out about me is because Matthew Bur Burroughs was, was cruelly murdered. Uh, while sitting in his car with his feet on the brake and the officers were just angry because he made them chase him. Well, County Coroner says he knows how Matthew, Matthew Burroughs died. The ruling is homicide. According to an autopsy, Burroughs died of multiple gunshot wounds to the chest. The gunfire erupted as Niles police tried to stop him after officers say he took off from Niles Municipal Court. There was a warrant out for his arrest. The shooting happened last week outside the Royal Mall Apartments. BCI is investigating. Warren is a lot like Ferguson. The police department is similar. Uh, very few black officers. And the mafia influence undermined a lot of the institutions. Um, but racism and tribalism is also influential because like we said in Steubenville with all these families that are connected, you know, or just the same family, they will defend their own, 
but they won't, they won't lift a finger for anybody else. And so like the, so Warren is an interesting case and it's so much like Ferguson and so much like my hometown in a way, because uh, all of the little towns around Warren don't allow black people to live there. And so Warren gets more than its share and the white people are often pretty discriminatory. And the black community there suffers, you know, like a languishing of like, you know, underemployment, underinvestment, violation of rights. They're systemically pushed, you know. Uh, Fred Harris can tell you so many things about how life used to be in Warren when he was a child. And it's, it's really chilling. His mother worked in public administration, but she wasn't allowed to use the bathroom. She couldn't use the, the toilet. And um, yeah, that like that <clears throat> diminishment of the people, they, they live in a, in a state of subjugation, like the, this family that I, I did have to keep their name changed because they didn't want any more pressure or public attention. They were just stomped under the foot of the, the police department. And when they tried to hire Olivito, they were hit with more criminal indictments that were spurious, you know, and they put the, the authorities put pressure on their marriage, you know, and pretty soon they, they folded. They were just like, we, we can't, we can't stand up against this. It's just too strong. You know, our kids are trying to go to school in this place. Olivito had the same problem. They retaliated against him through the family court. And there was two points that I wanted to make that. I definitely, I wanted you to go ahead. And go, uh, yeah. One is about the family point. courts. All these judges know each other. <clears throat> and this was something that the Department of Justice did a really great job of in Ferguson. They investigated the municipal court and looked at their finances. They were making their money off the black uh, residents. And Warren does the same thing, but they were never checked. The court has a bunch of racist judges, like openly racist. They're so obviously racist. They will allow white people to do heroin and work at the court, get caught with heroin, be high, and they skate. But a black person doesn't even have to be carrying drugs. They're called the N-bomb and they're arrested and strip searched. You know, it's just like, it's mind-boggling. But um, the, all the judges know each other, and they trade favors. And when somebody is disfavored, then every person of power piles on. The family court, the juvenile court, the municipal court. You know, like, oh, so-and-so is related to who? Oh, they're from Chicago. We don't like people from Chicago. We don't want people from Chicago in our town. So let's charge them with blah, blah, blah or, yeah. you know, kick them out of public housing or whatever it is. They find different ways to retaliate that they will never be caught because no journalist is going to take an interest in so much, you know, hard to discern things. You know, the family court, who knows about that? Who cares about that? That's the perfect vector for retribution, you know? So any family that stands up, they're like systematically taken apart you know, the kid arrested, the wife loses her job, the husband, you know, whatever. It just, they, they very carefully target. And Warren PD used to have a newsletter for the officers 
where they kind of like made fun of who they had beaten up the last week. What? Yeah. They would, they would, you know, lamp. Did you see this or did you, you heard about it? I was able to get a copy of it, but this was some of the stuff from the dark ages, you know, Mm -hmm. of 2004, (laughs) which is like only 15 years ago. In Warren, it was like 1960, you know, in Warren, you know, in 2002, they were having black officers come forward being like, please stop using the N word. Like we got to have some, you know, like they were going to Fred Harris being like, man, we just, we're having to deal with this all the time. But we just can't say anything. This was 2002, not 1980, not 1970. And it continues. They got a, a more savvy chief now that can do a better job with the public relations. But Fred Harris says it's even worse. Yeah. In fact, they just killed somebody like three or four days ago. Really? Black man, of course. Yeah. Dubious circumstances. Papers didn't want to release all the details. Police department kept as much information. Uh, They wouldn't release the name of the officer, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. It's always the same, you know? And, um, well, the, uh, the intimidation tactics that, you know, they wield against average people. Um, those are distressing and but almost kind of like well i'm not that surprised by it it's very easy for them to just dunk on people without any power in the system it was uh really something to take in and i liked the way you kind of laid the bricks out in the book of leading up to when they just drop the hammer on olivito with all these little things that were like, oh, he had a contempt charge for being late to a thing. Um, And then he wrote wrote an email out of exasperation and took a certain tone in the email and they just held on to all of it. And you want to kind of catalog the demise of Richard, the end of Olivito's legal career? So, yeah, that's a really good way to, to lay it out there because that was really difficult to capture. And it's another one of these things where civil rights activists get smeared by a system that is so devious that it's really hard to even figure out what's going on, you know, and Martin Luther King is an example, but Olivito, and I don't mean to compare them, but um, Olivito was retaliated against by police in Steubenville and judges in Warren. So, and before they got to that institutional stuff early on, they straight up just tried to burn his house down. Yeah, yeah. The police, the police were, they tried to blow up his house in Steubenville and they tried to, uh, um, I forgot how they, they tried to kill him with gas. And then they, uh, there was something else they tried to do. Oh yeah, there was the time when they, they had the gunman in the, the yard of the, the neighbor and were trying to find him on a laser scope to kill him so that was in the beginning that was like his first season of police misconduct fighting and then the second one they were way more uh uh, subterfuge involved so they got a contempt charge because he didn't show up for a dui hearing you know for not for him for a client (laughs) yeah for a client that that didn't even show up anyway and so this judge in youngstown charges him with contempt and then imprisons him or incarcerates him trying to break his will and he gets out and he just keeps fighting and then they 
they use the contempt charge that kind of morphed into a mental health thing. Like they tried to get him to take a mental health assessment in, in jail because they wanted to use that against him. But then that failed. So then they just conjured up a mental health. They conjured up an attorney misconduct thing first. When the pretext so, for the mental health was what? That he had a lot of cases or that he wrote, he wrote his crazy, it wasn't a crazy email, but he just, it, he took a very unprofessional tone being exasperated with the opposing counsel. And the judge was like, oh, I, uh, I see that you have, mis- you have mental issues by your writing. Because yeah. he was like, he was making Because he used fun. sarcasm and- Yeah, yeah. he was using sarcasm, which was actually pretty funny when you read it. Oh, yeah. Especially talking to this big shot lawyer, you know, who's like- Well, I just kept thinking, yeah, I just kept thinking about like that, the, the uptight, high-end lawyer read like- <laughs> Yeah, being like, oh, I'm going to get this motherfucker. And he was making fun of his Vietnam service. Mm-hmm. Like he was trying to get in the opposing lawyer's head, which is normal. Lawyers are always jousting with each other and being like unprofessional and, and accusing each other of shit, you know? And so they use that against him to, to, it is just bizarre. So they, they, co- they co-opted the Supreme Court Disciplinary Council to smear his reputation without even very much to go on. They trumped up all this stuff and they went in like three different stages of trying to ruin him. You know, they, they, the top ethics officials in the Supreme Court committed ethical misconduct in order to smear Richard Olivito and they were allowed to do it. Then they wouldn't even, they won't even give him his license back. He was, his license was taken away for a signature violation that caused no financial harm to the client. And the, the way that they trumped it up was like so disparate to the amount of attention that they would give to a top, you know, um, senior attorney at Weston Heard. Who this was, he was late. He was just about to file something and notice there was one missing signature on one part of a bankruptcy. He was doing very cheap. And this yes. is apparently something lawyers will do. It's like, yes, all right, I, I'll just sign. They were, he wasn't like, oh, I'll sign this. And then I'm going to get a whole bunch of money out. It. it was just no. expediting. He things. was losing money. Yeah. He was losing money. But they used that. And then, yeah, they tried to say, then they went, they tried to go through all his clients, say, oh, you were over billing people or acting unethically. And yeah, none of it held up. And the, the chief counsel of the disciplinary council conspired in ex parte communication, which is illegal uh, for attorneys. Uh, Ex parte is when, when they just have a sidebar, we're going to go when the the defendant is not able to participate and he should be, uh, with the panel chair in bringing up a mental health accusation that didn't have any merit. It's like, it was so mind boggling that the top ethics attorney in the state agreed to take on the case, even though he was afraid that it could mar his reputation with the Supreme court. And he tried to get this information published in the Columbus Dispatch, and they ignored all relevant parts of the story, including the evidence that the top ethics officials had committed, committed ethical misconduct. It's just like, how is that allowed to happen? But the Supreme Court Disciplinary Council has been allowed to run roughshod over activist attorneys' rights over and over again, including black activist attorneys and judges. Mm-hmm. If any... 
African-American attorney gets ideas into their head that they're going to start doing civil rights work, this is the Supreme Court Disciplinary Council set them straight real fast. Well, I'll say I don't doubt that um, Olavito probably had a lot of mental issues, but they all probably stemmed from the exasperation and frustration of trying to be a decent person in this system. <laughs> There was a funny comment on an article about that, and it was a lady that was saying, uh, Olavito has PTSD, which is understandable, but it's the judges in Trumbull County that are driving the, cra the crazy train, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if I had had people trying to kill me and blow up my house, I think I would be a little bit, you know, triggered by some of the things that were happening to the clients, you know? Well, you're certainly going to be a lot more, I don't know, you are going to be a very different lawyer from all the lawyers that are like cogs in the machine. Yes. And the funny thing, in Warren and Steubenville, I've kind of kept up with the communities. Like I continue to have people contact me and I try to refer them to a journalist or somebody, you know, that can advise them or help them, you know, and... Um, there are precious few lawyers in that area that will take on a case, you know, even if it could win them $200,000, you know, they aren't really wanting to do it a lot of times because there's just too much sacrifice involved. The public um, shaming and the professional, you know, ostracism is, is more than a lot of attorneys are willing to put up with. And, um, even the, the powerful attorneys that have consciousness, conscious, consciences are kind of, they'll go a little bit, but they won't go so far. They'll be like, okay, I'll like look into this case, but they're not going to go to the, you know, they're not going to go to the extent that Olivito would putting himself in danger. There's just not that many attorneys, even, even the, the, the attorneys of color in Trumbull. You got to worry too about like, I mean, there's, there seems to be attorneys out there who they'll take the case, but they're buddies with people in the system and their ultimate seems like their ultimate motivation is to just like, I got this to like kind of squash grenade. it from the inside. Yeah. 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 Like, so they'll, they'll take the case through the motions, but then ultimately not vigorously attack it because yeah. that's how you kind of go along to get along. The public defenders, for example, oh, totally yeah. lay down on the clients. And I've heard that from numerous people, you know, uh, they feel like they're not getting represented They're you know, and in Warren, they were actually recording the conversations the defendants had with their attorneys back in the 70s and 80s. They had a special recording device that they were busted with. Wow. They were just violating the rights wholesale. And in fact, I heard another story that I, I didn't really put in the book because I was asked not to. But um, there was a dispatcher who uh, witnessed officers beating the crap out of a young black youth uh, in, in the interrogation room. So she's walking down the hall and she's hearing, you know, somebody getting the tar kicked out of them. And she like is able to see that this, those two cops are just wailing on this young kid. And then they close the door 
you know, and then they send somebody to threaten her. Like, oh, hey, if you want your job tomorrow, you better keep quiet about what you saw. We all have to do our part. You know, this is part of, this happens. You know, it's part of the job. Uh, we don't say anything about it. And you are well advised not to as well. And she didn't. She told the safety director, but what could he do? You know, yeah. unless the kid wants to file a complaint, why is he going to do that? You know, he's not going to be able to live in that community after that. So I guess kind of rounding out here, um, yeah. I wanted to ask, so what lessons do you hope activists and reformers and police abolitionists would take away from your book? What do you think is the most um, important thing? So I've been meaning to say something about in defense of good cops. Um, I think that activists need to try to form relationships with the good officers, with public officials that have conscience. You know, we can't all do, we can't just to assume that all of them absolutely disagree with everything that we hold dear and that we stand for. It's not always so clear. They have their allegiance, but they also feel a pull about accountability. Um, but there is a kind of ferocious culture against rats, just like the mafia. So you have to respect that police are under a lot of pressure not to turn. But you also got to know that police have consciousness or consciences and that a lot of these other officials, just, they need prompting, they need pushing, they need to be called to the, but to the better angels, you know? Uh, but at the same time, when you realize that a chief or a prosecutor or an assistant prosecutor is absolutely irredeemable, then you have to take out the guns and you have to fight and records of quests, talking to the media, and you need to shame. I, I don't want, I don't mean like always publicly, but you have to shame the editors of the newspapers you know, publicly if it comes to it. But at first, entreaties. I email the editors and journalists in Trumbull religiously with stuff that they need to know. And they may turn their nose up at it, and then I will publicly condemn them because I told them what was mm. happening. I gave them records. I gave them recordings, and they didn't do anything with them. And that's when I start on Medium, and I... I'm not worried about defamation. I am not worried about any of this stuff. I want to show the public what these people have been doing in no uncertain terms, you know? And people are too afraid to do that. They're worried about what's going to be said about them. They're going to lose friends, and they will. They'll lose friends. They'll lose jobs. People will be against them. And you have to be able to know what the costs are going to be because a lot of people aren't going to be able to pay it, you know? And there, we didn't, we didn't talk about that too. There were some journalists in this that took, that paid a bit of a price for going hard at this, or at least, or like, uh, who was the one from F WFMJ who just up and moved out of town? Yeah. Okay. So there's two journalists, uh, three, actually three that were courageous. April Hunter, who did the Cleveland scene articles. She got her windows busted out and had to leave the state. Uh, Peggy Sinkovich, who has remained a, uh, anchor in Cleveland. She did fantastic reporting. 
She's very courageous. Janet Rogers, also from WFMJ, where Peggy Sinkovich also worked, I believe. But they were fantastic. And they, you know, um, Janet Rogers is a Republican. Um, there was a, another attorney that um, is now going for judge, and she was an assistant prosecutor. She was a Republican. Uh, you know, it's not like that good people don't come from the other party. Some of the best judges, prosecutors, and journalists in Trumbull are Republicans. And it, it wasn't obvious for Richard Olivito who was going to support him and who wasn't, you know. Sometimes Republican judges were better than Democrat judges. Democratic. I don't want to be doing what Fox News is always doing. Yeah. But, um, They're really insidious with that. It really worked. Yeah, yeah, I know. But so there's like, uh, you know, in cases you thought that Olivito would win in front of uh, sympathetic judges that he didn't. You know, it's not a clear-cut thing. And same with the police, you know. It's not clear-cut that they're always against Black Lives Matter. A lot of times they just don't want to say that they support it, mm-hmm. you know. But I'd say making personal relationships when you can and uh, then torching those personal relationships when the people do the wrong thing, you know, and pu- putting up with the, the, the blowback, you know, being willing yeah. to put up with that blowback, even if it's like using intimidation, you know, but just to be ready to record things. If I was a person working as a public official, I would be recording stuff left and right, tipping off media. You know, you can play both sides, and plenty of officers have. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, I was approached recently by a local officer that wanted to blow the whistle. And um, I didn't give that name. I don't even know the name, but I wouldn't give it to anybody, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it over if I was sued. But there are good officers that want to do the right thing, but it is dangerous. Well, I, I mean, I think ultimately, we're kind of getting back to looking at what is, what is the limits of something like a consent decree and what sort of yeah. reforms <laughs> are actually going to um, affect change. And there's so much that just comes down to whoever these good cops are that are in this system, they are completely trapped in what they are mandated to do, whether it's, you know, they have to, they have like numbers they got to pull off and go ahead. You're excited. So I got, I got something that's helpful. Okay. So there were two turncoats in the WPD and at least two. I know of more, but there were at least two officers that were willing to go against the entire department and risk their career to do the right thing. Uh, So the way to reach out to those officers um, is to, to show them that you know, that like Black Lives Matter is not just like fueled by a a blanket hatred of the police, that we do want and need, you know, capital crimes to be investigated. You know, what we, so the stop snitching movement, 
the stop snitching movement complicates activism so much uh, because nobody in the black community can, can work with the police because they'll get killed. And if you, so there's another officer that was racist, but he was a senior officer and he was at least honest about his job. He had integrity and even his, even the, the most radical civil rights activist in Warren would say, Marhulik was a stand-up guy. Lieutenant Marhulik now, I believe. I think he actually, he, he, uh, he retired. He was a, a, a sergeant and a, a captain, but he's retired. And he was in trouble for drunkenly yelling racial slurs in the projects in, in, uh, in Warren. But the man had integrity about inter internal investigations. He could be pushed to cover up stuff by the chief who had ultimate say, but the man was not absolutely the enemy. He, made, he reached out to the black community and he operated with council people and, the, and Fred Harris. Mm -hmm. You know, so... It's, it's really difficult, you know. Um, if I was a person of color and I really wanted to make change in my community, you just, you can't like approach the sergeant and be like, hey, let's work together because you're going to alienate people in your own community. They're going to think you're, you're a snitch or you're, you're, you know, like we need to give you, give people, spread your name around so that you get eliminated. And that happens in Warren. Well, you know? I think, I mean, what needs to be done is, is the officers, you know, if, if you want to actually push back against the, you know, the quick shorthand of all cops are bastards. And, you know, and I've had that debate with people where, you know, I'm not saying, or at least my understanding of that as a shorthand isn't every individual person who has decided to become a police is an irredeemable piece of shit. It is like what you were talking about, how if you're a good person going into politics to be this thing, the system turns you into yeah. a bastard. Yeah. You, yeah. you are a good person, but now you, with, you cannot call out malfeasance in your department. There's no route for you to circumvent bad leadership. And yeah. if you call out officers that are laterally equivalent to you or below you, yep. you will become a pariah. Yep. And so it's, I agree with you. Like what needs to happen is we need to, and I remember saying this back when like Occupy was happening, happening. Yeah, it really yeah. struck me when I was looking at the way the cops were surrounding it and, and where everyone's talking about class issues that clearly affect working class people who are police. And it's like, if we can win the police, we win, you know, yeah. as far as like understanding that they, if, and that, but that has to go to like the, the police who are, went into it, who are decent, who aren't yeah. on a power trip. Cause let's face it, the job as it is, is going to attract psychopaths, yeah. you know, the the, no, in the same way that I think that the Catholic church attracted yeah. predators as yeah. a, like, Oh, if I go do this, I have absolute authority over small children. That's a pretty sweet gig for my weird kicks. Yeah. If I was a police officer, I don't think I would be a very good one. I had anger issues. 
you know, it would just, it would be really, really difficult. Uh, it's a, it's a super challenging job. And, um, I know that anybody listening to this who has experienced police brutality or who has uh, felt powerless is going to be like, you know, easy for you guys to say, you guys live a privileged existence. You guys are guaranteed rights. You guys are treated well by the police. I have been let out of crimes by police. Like I should have been arrested numerous times. Police let me out of stuff like blatantly. There was times when I felt the, I felt the white privilege, like a freaking cloud, you mm -hmm. know, letting, when I got pulled over, I knew I was doing something wrong and the cop, you know, smelled the marijuana and then let me go. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, all right, my, you know, I'm dirtied by that experience. Well, I know I look back on the time that like I, I got a disorderly conduct ticket from yeah. a cop because I yelled something agitated when he like ran through a light right in front of me. And then I was and like, you what? Were black, and, I, yeah, and I yelled like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm crossing the street with my kid or something. And it was yeah. my wife and my, my like eight month old. We were about to cross the street and this cop just zips through the light that we had the, the crosswalk for. And so I just said something like, Jesus Christ, just go through the light. Like no one's here. And then he like immediately did a U-turn and it was a cop van and like four cops got out and and I was just indignant and and looking back, I'm like, oh, if I'd have been black, I probably would have been taken away in cuffs. If not, yeah. who knows? They'd shoot me in front of my kids. Yeah. Um, but I got off with a disturbing. The funniest thing about that story is, though, after they stopped and ran my license and wasted like 10 minutes and gave me this ticket for disorderly conduct. They get back in the van and the guy says, oh, by the way, we're on our way to an emergency. That's why we ran the light. Let's well, not have been very- Well, God, let's, let's hope that emergency ha was able to wait long enough for you to give me this bullshit ticket. Wow. So yeah. back to the reform. So I was thinking about it in terms of reform versus revolution. Um, a lot of people are like, no, it's too late for reform. Like you guys have, You've broken the social contract and they have the police in America have absolutely broken the so social contract with, with the communities, um, the black community, the Latino community. Um, if, if the white people of, if the white people of high class were paying attention to what was happening to the lower class, you know, they would also be like indignant because it does affect everybody. It affects black people three times more, but, um, we were, we're not going to get rid of the police. We may try to scale down what, um, they're called to do in terms of mental health or protecting children at schools. You know, that's not stuff that they used to do. Um, we had other services that were in charge of that and the police have taken over those services in the absence of funding. One, one thing that is an interesting idea I'd never heard before um, that has been floated by um, the Kareem Henton, the co-founder of BLM Cleveland. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, I was talking to him about Euclid and, and all this. And uh, he floated the idea of like, police should have to have individual carry individual liability insurance. Yeah, I agree. And they should, uh, they should have to pay um, misconduct claims you know, up to some certain deductible or whatever, like that would make such a different incentive system, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I think that people 
want the catharsis of protest and expressing their anger at that moment. And the, most people don't really want to do the work that it takes to actually reform the department. They just will be like, I hate all the cops, you bastards. And I feel it too, you know, I want to go and like yell and, you know, scream at, at cops who do this. But we're cutting off our nose despite our face in some respects because even the good cops are, are retiring. And that leaves room for, for cops who actually just want to use force and want to dominate libs and whatever, you, you know? Yeah. When these things happen, people don't know exactly where to apply, where to put their anger. And the most Absolutely. obvious thing is like we show so up at true. this protest, yeah, but how do you, how do you sustain it? Yeah. yeah. How do you sustain your city council meetings? But um, I, it, yeah. it definitely is like something that helps is for these public officials to feel constant public pressure, yeah. but it has to be more sustained then and and too the i think now what we're finally seeing is it's breaking out of like where the the this moment is we're breaking out of just protesting isolated uh, uh, uh tragedies yeah. and it's finally kind of seeped into a wider uh, uh, consciousness with with, yep. with lots of people who you know especially i think a lot of white people who it's taken didn't re- are finally years. catching up no, with what years. black they're finally catching up with what black people's reality is because exactly. that's what happens in you know your book is just like oh well this is the reality for black uh residents of warren but before cameras became ubiquitous yes. and an equal and presented that sort of equalizing force where it's like you can, no i'm not crazy and you can see how it's happening that finally they had some credibility to, to, and, 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 but now it's taken like 20 years too since that for it to reach this level of mass consciousness uh, yeah. or, that, or it's getting to a critical mass now where exactly. people are like, okay, this is it's systemic. become broad based, which is, um, is a massive accomplishment. Um, one of, one of the, the key things I think is, is making connections across boundaries and, um, for like the white allies, um, it can be surprisingly difficult to make bonds in the black community. Uh, the distrust is thick. Uh, I had a lot of um, people that didn't trust me initially. I had to do a lot of um, like do paying and getting vouch, vouch, you know, from vouching from other people in the community. But the thing is, is once you are trusted by these people, um, your neighbors, you know, that live across town, like in Warren, a lot of white residents will never even go into the black community. You know, they live in the same town and they never know these people. Mm-hmm. And it does, it takes a lot to build relationships because the distrust and the cleavage of these communities has been so just huge. And um, man, once I started to build relationships in the black community in Warren, it was so rewarding. It was super rewarding. The people are, are wonderful and you want to help them. Like I, I don't even, I don't live in the U S anymore and I still am writing about stuff that happens in Warren just because I care about these people. They're such fantastic people. And 
Um, I think once the, <clears throat> the white people who are starting to feel that push of conscience start to go over these color boundaries and really start being like, let me, you know, empathize with what has been happening. A lot of this um, distrust can be broken down, but um, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia is a great example. Uh, I lived there for three years. A lot of the time that I was investigating Ohio, I was in Virginia and there was this movement happening, trying to remove that uh, Confederate statue. And it brought together the black and the white community in a really, really powerful way. And the, the white allies that were willing to sacrifice everything stepped forward. And they're in, on city council, and this is something that Warren residents and a lot of other residents in Ferguson and other small towns across the country could learn from, is that once there, so there's five people in the Charlottesville city council Three of them needed to agree to remove this statue, right? There's only one black councilman. So they built bridges to this one kind of like right wing guy who is like pro business, but they appealed to his conscience and they got him to stand up and he voted pro, remove the statue. And then this other lady, white lady, whose uh, neighbor's house was blown up by the KKK when she was a kid in Alabama, had a sympathy for the, you know, had a super deep childhood sympathy. Mm-hmm. She was like, you know what? I'm fucking vote against this goddamn statue. And she was willing to get death threats, rape threats, scary phone calls, um, yeah, her, her children were threatened, you know, not for, not once, but like over a period of months, you know, and that's nothing to, to talk about what the, the black councilman endured in terms of death threats. Somebody tried to break into his house, you know, he has, he has daughters and it's just like, you know, how, how are people supposed to stand up for change when that is what you have to deal with? You know, it's, it's vicious. And it was the same in Steubenville and Warren. Creepy phone calls, death threats, mm-hmm. you know, breaking the windows, threatening children. There's no, there's no depth to which they will not stoop. And who's doing it? The police. In Warren, there were some times when there'd be anonymous comments and it was like so obvious that the person was a cop, you know? I like, love the really, I love those. You have those peppered throughout, like bullet comment thread yeah. comments from from websites and things like that. Anonymous comments that were on like Warren discussion boards or, or, or Vindicator articles and things like that. Yeah, and it was all designed for like really, really, you know, triggering the black community. Mm-hmm. They were like, we know exactly how to to hurt your to hurt you in a deep way, you know, like a soul punch, like calling your children criminals and this kind of stuff. And it, it was just psychological abuse, just every which away. And um, that was why I, I call my book A Journey into America's Heart of Darkness is because that's not what you realize when you're just watching the news. Because the news doesn't tell you when people are getting death threats, you know, a lot of the times. And, but that's what's really happening behind the scenes. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for the work you've done here, Tim. It's really, uh, it's a great model. Uh, I'll be plugging the hell out of the book. Got to do it sideways though. Um, And I will, I will definitely be uh, keeping tabs or keeping in touch with you. Uh, It's been really great. uh, As I've, I've started walking this path of a journalist. Um, It's good to know what I'm in for once I actually do a challenging enough story. Uh, We'll see what kind of harassment I face. Um, luckily, I don't know. Surprisingly, and that's why I said that uh, this book gave me a little bit of faith for American democracy, despite the cyber attacks, which were terrifying and really kind of pushed me over the deep end for a few hours, um, I didn't get threatened by police as far as I could tell. Um, I don't know if that would have been different if I would have been, if I was black. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there is definitely privilege involved in being a journalist if you're white um, that maybe doesn't apply if you're black. But, you know, I was hardened by it that, you know, nobody came to track me down. My windows weren't broken out. Uh, I didn't get death threats. We didn't get creepy phone calls, you know. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not always going to be a horror story, but it could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I- I'm glad so far your story looks like it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's turned out so pretty so well. Good. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful Vista behind you there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Tim. Well, I uh, thank you so much and go enjoy your beautiful day. I'm going to get back to my gray cloudy Ohio bullshit here. And uh, I can't look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise. Thanks so much, man. Take it easy. Thanks so much for uh, sticking around all the way to the end of the episode. Uh, If you're just listening to the podcast right now, uh, there's a list of Patreon supporters. It's scrolling on by. And I am using the credits to let you know that if you are on that list by October 15th, 2020, you are eligible to win a free copy of... Tim's book, Blue Mafia, uh, and I will be giving that away to a random patron. And even if you can't wait until October 15th to find out if you want it, to read it, um, you buy it, and I, if, I guarantee you will know someone who will appreciate getting this as a gift. You can always kick it on down the line to the next Patreon supporters. So, yeah. These, uh, I guess these giveaways are officially kind of a regular thing now. I did this before with uh, Brent Langle's Snow White Zombie Apocalypse comic. And uh, I'll get around to adding that to the Patreon rewards page, hopefully soon. So uh, I guess I'll go do that. Well, thanks uh, for watching or or listening, whatever you're you're doing. Uh, If you made it this far, then I got to say, you know, wow. Thanks for sticking around. I really appreciate it. But now you got to go.